Hello and welcome to the Safety Goals Podcast with Justin Torres and Charlie One, presented by Interfree. This is episode two with our special guest, Cindy Chang. Justin, today we have a treat for everybody. Cindy Chang is a, an accomplished medical professional in the field of athletics and sports. Um, she spent a good amount of time uh, being the team doc at University of Cal Berkeley, as well as uh, with the Olympic national team and Paralympic national teams in London. Um, but she is more than that to a lot of people. I think she's a, a leader in the space. Uh, she's looked to and respected uh, in, as being a vocal uh, advocate for sports safety, namely sudden cardiac arrest and a number of different initiatives that she's been involved with. Uh, there's just so much to talk about. And this episode with Cindy, I think, is going to be impactful for a lot of folks who are who believe in sports safety, who believe in taking better care of athletes. Um, I think it's going to resonate with a bunch of folks. So really excited to have this conversation today. I completely agree, Charlie. You know, Cindy Chang is a woman who truly is able to break barriers in the world of sports. Um, she's done so much impeccable and important work, both like you said at UC Berkeley and in the NWSL, which is the National Women's Soccer League. And she's just starting there, but I know she's going to do tremendous things. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Okay, so we are here with Cindy Chang of the NWSL. I just wanted to say it's a complete honor to have you on the Safety Goals podcast today. You have a really, really great history from your time at The Ohio State University, working at UC Berkeley, and even your connection through the NWSL with your daughter who used to play professionally. So Cindy, I just want you to kind of take us a little bit about your history and show us how you kind of got to where you are today. Um, how did I get where I am today? I would say that my, it starts with my parents. I, I know I'm going way back, but I think they instilled in me a sense of, um, hard work, um, high ethics, you know, kind of doing what's right, standing up for what's right. Um, and from that, I think I pursued, uh, mm. then a career in uh, medicine. My medical career was chosen because I was an athlete, uh, as many of us, on this call are listening. We are have been former athletes or we are associated with athletes, whether or not it's our kids or our spouses or, or the, the network around us. And um, that really being an athlete from a young age instilled in me a sense of uh, teamwork, a sense of achieving a common goal and working together as a team uh, to do that. Uh, I've never been involved in individual sports. I think that defines me as uh, characteristically. I, I'd much rather play a game of hoops or, or volleyball rather than, um, you know, be on an elliptical, put it that way. And um, gets hard to do as I enter my older age is to find others <laughs> willing to compete and participate with me. But that um, love of sports uh, drove me into medicine in terms of caring for people, caring for people um, after injury and illness, as well as preventing. One of the big aspects of my role as a primary care sports medicine physician has been uh, not only when someone comes in is determining what is your injury, how can we get you better and back to participating in the activity or, or the recreational activity or competitive activity that you want to return back to, but it's also how do we prevent this from happening again? Because I don't want to see you back again, right? I want to get emails from you. I want to hear about you back there successfully, but I don't want to see you back with the same injury or a different injury. And that has, that led me into my role as a primary care sports medicine physician, because I could spend the time to educate. And as a team doctor being on the field, I could also see, wow, that was a mechanism of injury. How to protect that athlete from having that same injury? What can we do? on the field and off the field to make sure that that injury doesn't happen again. Justin, I just realized I jumped from medical school to what I do now, and, and there's a lot of years in between. So ask follow-ups. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the good things is there is a lot of in-between, and in that in-between was actually UC Berkeley, and that's something I really want to touch on. And you were the first female head team physician that they've ever had at that school. So what does that mean to you to be able to break barriers in the world of sports and medicine? I understand that I'm a role model. Um, the, the, I wasn't the, yes, I was the first female head team physician at University of California, Berkeley, understanding they hadn't had many team physicians before me, right? Um, Dr. Jerry Padmont was uh, my, one of my predecessors, and uh, he did a great deal in terms of 
uh, bringing sports medicine uh, to the to the institution. He's now deceased, but he was an internist and uh, he was one of the team physicians who worked hand in hand with orthopedic surgeons. Because in the past, when people think about team doctors, they think about orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons are great. Uh, they're wonderful colleagues of mine, uh, but they really focus on the musculoskeletal system and on surgery. Whereas the, the field of primary care sports medicine, which is still in its infancy, I mean, the, the field was, you know, kind of developed in 1992 with the society, the American Medical Society for, for Sports Medicine. And it grew from 20 founders, uh, really, to what it is now to over 3,000 members. And we provide care for the uh, entirety of the athlete, all medical issues and musculoskeletal issues, uh, from concussions all the way to skin conditions, all the way to uh, torn ACL, we can diagnose it, manage manage it, and then we appropriately refer if someone needs surgery. If someone has a heart condition, we evaluate, assess it, and then as needed, we refer to a cardiologist, for example. So, being at Cal in the lead in the head team physician role as a primary care sports medicine is not a new thing at Cal. What was new is that I was the first female at a division one institution to, to take care of football and um, being the uh, a younger in my 30s head team physician female and asian i think is a lot to throw at not only players but mainly the coaches at that time so back in 1995 there were coaches not only from the football team but on the other teams who had never even had a female physician, much less a sports medicine physician, female, and then you throw an Asian. So there's no question that it was a challenge for people. I think the players really responded well to them, right? Because most of our players have mothers. They have, you know, at that time, they, they would have a maternal influence on their upbringing. And so, I think they felt more comfortable. I believe, I actually know they felt more comfortable coming to me with issues that were outside of sports injuries. So issues with relationships, issues with their role on the team, um, you know, even private medical issues that I don't think they would have brought up to a male physician or male orthopedic surgeon, whatever. I mean, regardless, I, I don't want to pig, uh, pigeonhole people into roles because Everyone has their own skill set and diversity, but I feel like being in that role gave me more of that ability to have players, men and women, uh, reach reach out to me at the college level. Um, and not only was I the first female head team physician at a Div Div Division One institution that took care of football, I was also the first female chief medical officer for Team CMO for Team USA at the. Paralympic Games in 2008. I was the first female um, team CMO uh, for USA at the 2012 London Olympic Games. I mean, prior to that, our teams had never been led by a, a female um, at any Paralympics or Olympic Games. Um, so I realize the mantle that I wear, I think that's the right term. If, if I'm incorrect in that usage, I apologize. Um, and I, I'm and I realize I'm a, I'm a role model and I, I do have people reach out to me. I will tell you, Justin, the hardest part was when I decided to step away uh, from being the head team physician at Cal in 2008. Um, it was a tough decision at the time. And I think we'll segue that into youth sports. But my kids were in middle school, early middle school. I realized that I wasn't seeing my kids participate in their activities. Um, I was missing that part of it. I was also seeing a lot of their friends um meaning meaning they were coming to me because they realized that I was a mother of these kids and and with my expertise and knowledge I was seeing more of their injuries and I realized that I needed to be in that community um, and as a head team physician at Cal I wasn't able to see them formally on a formal basis um because of liability risk etc right my my job was to take care of the um, student athletes at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, but I felt really torn about leaving that role at UC Berkeley because I understood what my role in that power, in that position meant to, to young 
girls and, and women who wanted to pursue a career in sports medicine. I actually got emails from people saying, you can't leave. If you leave, that means that you can't do both. You can't be a mother, you can't, you know, all that thing and, and be the head team physician at UC Berkeley. And I think at times in our careers, we have to address those issues. You know, the elephant in the room, I like to say that, am I doing the right thing? And can I, can I, can I have all these roles? And there's going to be times we can't, we can't be super moms, super dads. We can't be that. And a little thing is in, I remember my, my daughter's uh, birthday is right around Halloween and it's football season. I not only sewed her costume by hand, I remember what her costume was, I threw a party for her and it was October and it's in the midst of football season. And not only, I do wanna say, not only do I provide care, had I provided care for the football players and as for those of you that take care of football or understand the sport of football, it is very demanding, very time consuming, practices go till nine o'clock at night, weekends travel. But I was also providing care as a head team physician to the 26 other teams, men and women, and providing the same level of care and the same accessibility to them because I felt very passionately that every athlete deserved the same level of care as the revenue sports, as we call it. So I was younger there then. I think I had the time and energy, but if you talk to my husband, he's like, you were sleeping five, six hours a night, taking care of the kids, and it was it was craziness. I would come home at night at nine o'clock. I would cook, make sure that the food was ready, put it in the refrigerator so that the next day when my husband came home from his long day of work and he picked up the kids, food would be ready to just be heated up. And I remember in 2008, when I started cooking fresh food, the kids would say, wow, that chicken pot pie tastes so much better coming right out of the oven than out of the microwave. So anyway. I just went on and on about that, Justin. Sorry. Let's let's pivot to youth sports. <laughs> You're good. Sydney, I think there's a couple of themes here too. I think first off, being a pioneer, I mean, you were you were taking on these roles because you saw a greater good. And you've you've just painted a picture of what your life has been. I think we hope for in the future. And now with growth of the sports medicine industry, there's more professionals now who are entering this field. So Maybe we can lessen lessen the load, hopefully, for all everybody else. But I know you too well, and I know that's that's your motor, and that's just one speed, and it's full. Um, the other piece that you touched on too, I think, was you you did a great job of painting the story and the picture around your holistic approach to medicine in general, but certainly to the athlete. And I think that was one of the first things uh, that you really opened up my eyes to. Instead of a general practice, the family medicine aspect when you were with UCSF really understanding that there's a lot of things that go into being a human being. And when an athlete comes in with a torn ACL, it, you know, there's a specialist for that part of your body, but there's an entire athlete attached to that knee uh, that needs care as well and attention. And it's one of the things that I think is unique about your approach. I know there's many others who have that same approach, but I think um, maybe shift a little bit just for a second um, into breaking down the importance and why you have that philosophy or why do we have specific roles within sports medicine uh, for athletes versus a general population? Um, who are those types of roles? And, and specifically, why do, you, why do you see that as an important factor in how we care for our athletes? I think a lot of it comes back to my training uh, first. First and foremost, I was trained as a family physician. I did my residency in family medicine, and only after that did I then pursue a fellowship in sports medicine, and uh, that which is additional training. And as a family physician, and as any primary care physician, uh, their training as a primary care physician is is holistic model. You know, it is not only dealing with the illness or injury, but it's also realizing the impact of are they going to be able to take their medication? Do they have the abilities to get that medication? And if they take that medication, is how much of this illness or injury has an impact on their ability to work, on their relationships with their family, et cetera, et cetera. So that is that is in a whole construct of primary care medicine, primary care medicine. So from a perspective of sports medicine, 
even in the obsession in the during the inception of my career at the Ohio State University. I like Justin how you threw in the because that is how you say that word, the Ohio State University. Yeah. Um, as a um, assistant professor there and developing, you know, with the residents and being a team physician at Ohio State, we, you know, that's kind of how my my role grew, my understanding grew of the the best model for care of the athletes. And during that time period is where I worked very closely with athletic trainers. At the high school level, I covered Division three school and Division one Ohio State. All three levels, I had athletic trainers, and they taught me so much about their ability to provide immediate access to the care of the athlete, whether or not it's a high school athlete, because as team physicians, we are not there 24-7. When an athlete is practicing um, on the field, off the field, in the training room, seeking care, it's the athletic trainer who's there. And, and thankfully, where I was in Columbus, Ohio at the time, I did have an athletic trainer at all level of, of care that I provided. That's not to say that, you know, that's not the same for everyone here um, who is listening on this call, you know, across the country, you know, there's um, one out of three high schools do not have an athletic trainer available to them. And that's even part-time. They have no athletic trainer. And so when you're talking about who are these athletes going to go to these high school athletes for care, there's a delay in the, access to care because they have to wait for an appointment or there's a, there's no assistance in terms of getting them into a provider for care so their ability to return back to their sport is is really um adversely impacted because they don't have that direct point of contact throughout my career as i as i you know talked to charlie a little bit about uh you know what i've done in in my 30 years being a primary care sports medicine physician is really trying to see how we can meet the needs of our, our athletes at all levels. So again, the care that I provide, which is getting to know someone as a person and understanding barriers to their recovery is important because if you don't address the psychological aspects of recovery from an injury or illness and some of the other socioeconomic aspects of being able to recover from an injury or illness, or illness, then you are going to miss out on a large part of their return to peak performance. And so all of those aspects have to be addressed. That trust is built up right away um, by the initial point of contact. So Justin, if you were to come into my office where I were to see you in the training room, I would just say you know, to you, hey, Justin, just like how we met today, right? Tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, I wanna know about my patient first, and then it helps me better understand their injury or illness and how that impacts them, okay? As a worker, as a, someone who's employed by someone or someone who's a student, et cetera, someone who's a partner, someone who has a child. That trust takes a little bit of time to develop. The athletic trainer, because of their access, that day-to-day -day access to that athlete, has built up that trust much earlier. And they can find out things that will be helpful for me as a physician in terms of helping them recover. So there's a partnership that I've developed with the athletic trainers with whom I've worked through my career. I'm still in touch with my athletic trainer from my high school from 1992. You know, we have developed that strong bond of friendship and partnership, right? And so that they are paramount to helping our athletes and not only athletes, but if there's athletic trainers, not just in the high school setting, but there's athletic trainers in the military, there's athletic trainers in the workplace, and they provide a quality of care and access to uh, emergency management of care, assessment of care, and appropriate triage of care to providers. And I talked about nationally, you know, the, the, the shortage, you know, how there's only at one out of three schools nationally don't have athletic trainer. It's worse in the state of California and in the state of California, it's worse because in my mind, we don't have athletic trainer licensure. And so therefore, we're the only state in the country, including the District of Columbia, that don't have some type of licensure or um, uh, credentialing process governance over the athletic training profession in our state. Even though dog walkers have a license, cosmetologists have a license, Many other professions, massage therapists have a license, but 
the profession of athletic training, a healthcare profession, those who impact our, our citizens so much don't have licensure. Sports are in full swing 24-7, which means athletes are bound to get injured. Injure Free is a software platform used by youth sport organizations and schools that was developed to help coaches, parents, and administrators communicate injuries that occur and ensure a safe return to play. These sports safety networks are essential for sports teams working to provide the safest possible environment for their families. For more information or to schedule a demo, please visit www.injurefree.com. That's www.injurefree.com. And I want to bring that back home just a little bit too. So in California, for example, 800 student athletes at the high school level, 800,000, excuse me, yeah. student athletes at the high school level. And what we've heard is that about half of them don't have access. So we've got about, you know, half a million kids, give or take, that do not have this level of access to this, this dedicated healthcare professional for athletes specifically. You mentioned why athletic trainers are so important because of that getting them back to, to what they love and what they, they're doing quickly. But what else? I mean, what are some of those other issues? Um, you know, give an example between a child who has the exact same type of injury, but there's an AT at their school, and then another kid who does not have an athletic trainer. What would you see as outcomes? What are some potential negative impact not having that athletic trainer that we might, uh, might be present in a care recovery plan? Does that make sense? I, absolutely. So if you have an athletic trainer at your high school, they are the hub of the medical services provided at that school. They are the hub of the educational services. They are the hub of the communication about the medical care. So to give an example, with an athletic trainer at this hub of this program, they will be the ones communicating with the coaches about meeting the state's mandates about coaching education and ensuring that they're providing access resources or even they can, some athletic trainers, like in our system, I have trained the athletic trainers to then train the coaches on AED, CPR, and first aid of which our coaches every two years have to be certified and first aid and CPR, including the use of an AED. So that athletic trainer will help the athletic director track the compliance with that education. In the state of California, we also have legislation that says that coaches need to take every two years um, a course on sudden cardiac arrest, recognition, signs and symptoms, et cetera. Also, heat illness. Also, concussion. So coaches have a great deal to do with that, and our athletic trainers can provide that resource and help provide the education surrounding those issues. In terms of communication, one important thing is the emergency action plan. For those of you not familiar with that and you've watched sports, you can, well, Again, if you've heard, I think you've had to be in a cocoon if you haven't heard what happened in the NFL with DeMar Hamlin, because it became very much present everywhere. And he credited his athletic trainer with saving his life. And he is a football player on the Buffalo Bills on national TV. He basically received a blow to his chest from a tackle, um, a helmet hit his chest, and he collapsed and essentially an AED prompt recognition and use of an AED saved his life. Now we know that there are multiples of uh, healthcare professionals on the sideline at an NFL game, less so at a high school football game or lacrosse game or soccer game or on the basketball court. But it's that emergency action plan of recognition if an athlete's been injured and how to call 911, who goes and makes sure that these resources, that this emergency um, medical services gets to the right side on campus, 
someone running and grabbing the AED and bringing it immediately to the athlete. Um, that plan has to be communicated and rehearsed by every team at every venue on that school campus or, or whatever campus you're on. And that can be coordinated and communicated and taught by the athletic trainer, okay? Last point I'll make is if an injury happens and that athlete is injured, that athletic trainer can call the parent if the parent's not there at practice, which they shouldn't be, honestly, or at the game, which sometimes they can't be. I say should be at practice only because sometimes parents can be too over-involved and that puts too much pressure on the kids. No, no, no so need take to, that no as need a to call. Yeah, no, no, okay. no need to okay. that one. We okay, don't sorry, yeah. sorry. I don't, I don't want to offend any parents who may be listening. But, but that athletic trainer can then pick up the phone, contact the parent or guardian, let them know of the injury, reassure them, but then help them facilitate care and say, oh, they have this insurance or they with this medical system, let me reach out to the provider and let's help get this patient in. Let me call ahead to the emergency room or urgent care and let them know about the situation and why we're sending your son or daughter you know, over. Okay, let's take those scenarios that I just gave you and let's go to a school that has no athletic trainer. Yeah, I mean, it's the okay, athletic director, right? It's a head coach, it's uh, whoever. It's whoever. And you add these responsibilities, which are clearly medical-based, and you add these responsibilities onto the shoulders of an athletic director or a coach, who, who the coach may be very, again, we know of coaches that just run in after work, and then this yep. is their other job, yep. right? And so you're adding the responsibilities, and they don't get paid appropriately. They're doing this out of passion, out of desire to help grow our young kids, right? And help them pursue a passion. But that's unfair for us to ask them to do this because they are not trained to do it. They don't have the resources to do it. Um, there could be adverse consequences if they try to do this. Um, and it just leaves our athletes in a void. Whereas if you fill that with an athletic trainer, all of these issues can be handled smoothly um, and, and, you know, save time before they're being seen. They can, honestly, if they're not appropriately assessed, that athlete could feel like they can play. The coach doesn't have the medical training to, to really clearly be able to evaluate that. And they may say, well, let's try and see. That athlete may incur further injury. And that just drives up healthcare costs. Right. You know, with an additional injury. And, and oh my God, if it's a concussion, Think right. about the tragic consequences that can occur if a concussion isn't recognized and the athlete continues to participate and continues to and gets another blow to their head. And we've heard of some of these devastating consequences that can occur. Yeah, lots of catastrophic issues. And I think, you know, when we talk about emergency action plans or that initial emergency response, first responders having an EMT on site sometimes can can help in those obviously they're they're you know like you're saying better than having a coach or somebody else uh, have to deal with in those emergency situations but i think i'm going to bring it back to to your point of the athletic trainer in the re relationship that they build with the athletes and how important that is um i mean i remember in college i mean i used to live in the athletic training room i'd be so beat up on sundays <laughs> after a football game I'd walk down, I'd, I'd somehow make it there. And then I, and then they just plug me into some cryo boot or something and turn out <laughs> the lights. And, you know, I'd be hanging down there and Sam Crowder was our head athletic trainer. He's still there. Uh, shout out to Sam. Um, and I remember we just, you know, when I was a sophomore and not playing a, a ton, I'd be uh, going through all of the universities and schools in the country and their mascots trying to stump each other on, you know, you know, but that's the relationship that you build and you get to know somebody. And with that, and we and during the injury recovery process, athletes are also very susceptible to mental health issues. They're removed from the team, right? They're not doing what they love. They're sometimes they don't see the light in the end of the tunnel. And that's when those relationships are so very important. And it is that holistic approach to athlete care. But I've got to bring this back and say, you know, play devil's advocate a bit here. Why can't somebody who's not certified in athletic training? also fill that role what does that certification mean 
And in California, we don't have licensure for, for these athletic trainers out of every other state and the District of Columbia in our country, which is bananas. But why is it that uh, certification in athletic training is so important? What does that mean specifically? And why should parents be asking the question, does our athletic trainer have their BOC and their licensure? So um, thank you, Charlie. I'm going to age myself and say when I was in high school, we did not have an athletic trainer. And uh, um, uh, so you are very fortunate um, to have one. And and I certainly um, realized that I'm going to shout out to, to Joe Ponzi. She was the athletic trainer in Columbus, Ohio, with whom I worked when I was a fellow at Ohio State and then and then on. So um, thank you for, for reminding me to give her a shout out. I'll tell you this. When we have someone who is acting as an athletic trainer and they don't have certification, so you mentioned BOC. BOC stands for Board of Certification. So that is a national certifying body for the athletic training profession. So certification by the BOC is is paramount, okay? But licensure is a different issue. So licensure um, as an athletic trainer is, is again, what, Charlie, you mentioned we don't have in California. And And the issue is this. Someone can come in to the state of California and apply for a job as an athletic trainer. And if an organization, let's say it's in high school, sees that application and says, oh, they're coming from, I'll just say Ohio, they're coming from the state of Ohio and they've had this experience at this high school for 12 years and they're moving to the Bay Area Bay Area now, right? And they're moving to the Bay Area and we need this and they've had a lot of experience, let's hire this person. There is no organization licensure body in the state of California that will then take a look at this patient's, sorry, this athletic trainer's past uh, experience in Ohio, contact the Ohio licensing board and say, hey, was there ever any type of complaints registered against this athletic trainer? Did this athletic trainer practice to the standard of care, you know, as denoted by the BOC and our state of Ohio? And are there anything outstanding that we should be worried about before we license this individual in the state of California? Because if there's any warnings, if this person was a sexual predator, if this person practiced outside of their scope of practice, right? Try to do something that in their profession they shouldn't be doing, then the licensing boards would talk to each other and this and California would not grant this athletic trainer a license and therefore this high school would not hire them right because they can't be licensed in the state of California because we don't have this licensure body in the state of California then we've removed we've removed this regulatory agency and this athletic trainer coming in from another state can practice without their high school knowing what's going on now this high school if they had the wherewithal could say, well, I'll try to contact the licensing body and try to look up things. But again, most of the time, there's not an awareness of that. Right. Okay. So not only, now I focus on the sexual predator, right? We should be concerned about that. We should absolutely concerned about anyone that's working with our young athletes having had that type of um, background, okay, history. But let's talk about some other things. We could have someone come in and be an athletic trainer who doesn't have the training. So when we talk about athletic training profession, we're talking about not only having the requisite education, and this is a college educated and now master's degree educated right. uh, healthcare profession, but also hours. You know, you hear about how they have to spend the requisite number of hours working with athletes, being on the sideline, assessing acute injuries, rehabilitation, return to play, communication with, you know, the rest of the medical team. And when we talk about assessment of injuries, then we're also talking about follow-up care. And that is also learning about the psychosocial health of the athletes. All of this is didactic curriculum that they get. And if you think about the nuts and bolts of their training from A to Z, 
Other people coming in and saying they're athletic trainer, but they haven't had that training. For example, I'll just say a chiropractor or an EMT, right? Or a medical assistant. Any of them coming in and, and saying that they are medically trained in as an athletic trainer, they certainly have not had the breadth and depth of the education and experience that a certified athletic trainer has. Also, there are athletic trainers who have let their certification lapse, right? They've trained in athletic right. training right. over the years. They've gotten their degree, they've gotten their education, but they no longer are certified. What that means is that they don't continue their continuing education. They don't continue to pursue excellence in their field. And all healthcare professionals have to have continuing education learning opportunities so that we stay on top of the latest. Yeah, it's science. It's a science-based field and, and that changes every day, yes. right? So you have to. Right. So if they're no, they're no longer certified by the BOC, that means that they're not having to get their accredit, you know, their, their current continuing education. They're no longer accredited, certified by the BOC. They also wouldn't qualify to have a license in the state because they're not staying up to date with it. And licensure also has this credentialing hours. So because I'm licensed in the state of California, I need to meet certain requirements to be licensed as a physician in the state of California. Right. I love the psychosocial health. That's a term I've never heard before, but I love that. And that's a great. Well, it's actually, yeah. So, so, so actually it's biopsychosocial health. Bio, so, that's great. So bio is the biological, it's a physiological injury or illness. But then the social aspect is everything that's involved in why did that injury happen and how can we get that injury better? But what psychological, psychological aspects, wait, what did I, biopsychosocial. Right. So bio is a physical, biopsychosocial is the psychological aspects of affecting recovery. So not only how did the injury occur, but then the recovery and the return to play, and then social, the social determinants of healthcare, which are huge, right? Did they not have the right shoes because yeah. they couldn't afford the right shoes on the basketball court when this ankle injury happened? Right. And then do they have the re you know, do they have the medical network to help them in their getting an X-ray, for example? And then again, can they get to school and get to care that they need with an athletic trainer if they have one, but does that because they can't get to the bus on time. Right. Right. This is the social, the social is so huge and people don't understand that. So it's a biopsychosocial model of, uh, of care and recovery. Not many youth sports administrators began their careers with the dream of negotiating insurance rates. Most have the love and passion for the game and saw it as a way to inspire the next generation of youth athletes. However, nowadays insurance can be the single greatest cost for a youth sports organization. At American Sports Insurance Services, we've done the work for you and created the single most comprehensive youth sports insurance program on the market. We did it by aggregating the largest youth sports injury database in the world. Let us do the heavy lifting and represent you for all your risk management needs. For more information or to get a quote, visit www.getamsys.com. That's www.getamsys.com. Now, Cindy, I, I want to kind of pivot once again. And, you know, I think for a lot of people that view and just watch sports, they think that the pinnacle has to be the Olympics. If you're representing your country, that it is the highest level of competition. And, you know, even in the medical sense, that must be quite a goal to accomplish and want to reach. So is there anything that you were able to learn and take away from your time with Team USA in Beijing and also the other Paralympic Games that you've been able to move and push towards uh, and transfer over at the W at the NWSL? That is such a great question. And let me ponder that, Justin. I, I will just say that systems appear to be glamorous and positions appear to be glamorous, but there's dysfunction in every system. 
And it is our job to identify those deficiencies and make things better, not only for the athlete, the player, for their health and safety and well-being, but for the support staff, right? The medical staff, everyone, right? It's a whole team that, that creates this um, environment so that the athlete can be successful. So I do want to say that because I, I say that because everyone goes, oh my God, that's so awesome. You're the team physician for Cal, you know? And it's like, it is, it is. It was, a, it was it, I loved it. Passion, the players. I'm still in contact with my athletes from decades past. However, people have to see the background of it, which is the hours, the commitment, being on call all the time, right? And trying to improve those systems to make it sustainable for people who follow me is really the key, is really the key. So what did I learn in my roles as team CMO, you know, CMO for Team USA at the Paralympic Games, you know, where our Paralympic athletes are, that is a pinnacle, is being at the Paralympic Games and at the Olympic Games. Um, certainly, the teamwork aspect is the most important. And I, I don't know that I learned, God, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to say, I think I, um, I think I improved my ability to communicate there. I've always understood the need for clear, open communication and the need for teamwork um, and expressing views. So if there's disagreements in terms of different things, policies or procedures or how to take care of athletes, um, how you do that in that environment and, 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 and how you address it right away rather than having it wait. Um, because in the end, the, there's immediacy of care that has to be given to the athlete who's participating at the, at the Olympics, right? They have to be ready to compete and participate. Their event is coming up. It's, it's, it's all go systems and everyone has to contribute to that. Um, I learned that really the communication, because we were all coming together, but we were coming together from all around the country. So it wasn't like a team that I had developed and worked with at UC Berkeley. It's not like the team that I'm developing and working with with the NWSL, which is we've had multiple meetings already with all the team physicians and the medical staff, athletic trainers, PT, on all of our 12 teams. Our, our season starts this weekend. There's already been a really great foundation built so that if something happens, we've already had this relationship. Not as, I don't know who you are, but boom, and boom, and things escalate because you don't know each other as a person. At the Olympics and the Paralympic Games, what I did was early on start that conversation with all 200 medical providers who were coming together to the Olympics to provide care, to make sure they understood that I was available, accessible, do you have any concerns? Here are the policies, let's discuss. And that communication, you know, could I have done that better? It's hard at the Olympics because there's so many different sites. People think that there's one site, there's one Olympic village. No, there are multiple sites where athletes are staying. You know, the NBA and the WNBA players, they were at a hotel. You know, mm -hmm. they weren't in the Olympic village or else they would have been mobbed, right? So I needed to make that time to go out to the hotel and meet with the providers, the medical team at that hotel to ensure that everything was working well. You know, and so it's making that extra effort to open up those communication lines. Face-to-face -face is key. Thank God. I mean, COVID changed that face-to-face, -face, but the ability to Zoom, which, you know, Zoom is a new term, right? We didn't know what Zoom was before COVID hit. This is, you know, the, sometimes that's the best that we can do, but but making time to have that face-to-face -face time is, is really important. So Justin, I skirt around your issue. Um, I think that all, I think that being in at that high level, I don't think it changes the level of care you provide your athlete doesn't, shouldn't, doesn't change, shouldn't change from the level of care you provide for my high school athletes and my junior athletes and my, you know, my, my, my kids, right. My meaning, my kids, me, my, patient population, no matter what age they are, it doesn't change. The immediacy of it changes, right? 
the type of care that you can provide changes depending on if they're adult or a kid, right? But what's consistent in all that is communication. What's consistent is clear, open, transparent, informed consent, communication with not only your athlete, but also the team that's supporting the athlete, whether or not that's guardians, coaches, et cetera, and then the rest of the medical staff. That doesn't change. It's interesting. We've had a good conversation with Skip Gilbert, who's the CEO for USU Soccer. And one aspect about um, the youth sports uh, world that he brought up was that we need to provide a template, a way to play youth sports out of a box. It used to be go to the field, play and run, but and you can still have that experience of organic uh, grassroots type level play, but these issues around risk management or medical safety need to be addressed and we need that structure. Um, and it's okay if they're, you know, you've got, you know, organic uh, lineup, pick the teams, go play type of environment, but these are the essential pieces that we've learned over time must be in place. And that central coordination and communication, especially at the youth sports level, can be probably just as difficult um, as in dealing with the Olympic, you know, structure and logistics that you did, um, meaning you've got a school nurse, you've got the kid's primary physician, you've got their parents, you've got one coach, you've got another coach. And there's so many people in the lives of a youth athlete that we don't think about that need to be communicated with and, and, and all on the same page, because if they slip through one of those cracks and there's a suspected concussion and they get back out there, right? Those are those moments that we've learned can be catastrophic for kids. So it seems like that the worlds that you've lived in and that you participated at these highest levels also still apply those skill sets around communication and coordination of care at every level. They, they, they absolutely do. Let me give you a, a concrete example. When I left as a head team physician at Cal, with all of the support structures that we had built up, the communication channels that we built up, I knew that if I saw an athlete, I could get then get them in with their athletic trainer and the physical therapy staff members that we had, their injury would be taken care of. We had mental health there, right, to support them. We had strength conditioning staff to help them get stronger again. So the return to participation and then play was gradual, stepwise. I knew it was handled. I left. I, I stepped away from that role in, in 2008, and I started working you know, a lot more with youth athletes. And I realized they don't have that support structure. Right. It was a much harder job for me as their physician because they didn't have that athletic trainer at that high school or at that youth sports level. And so I was giving them the instructions. It was so much of a longer visit for me. I was picking up the phone and contacting the coach uh, at the high school, for example, right. if need yeah. be, because I didn't have an athletic trainer be that communication portal for me. And I didn't have that athletic trainer helping them with their recovery in terms of how often do you ice, elevate, where, how are we going to wean you out of the walking boot or the ankle brace? How do you know you're ready to return back to activity? I didn't have that person. I had to do it. And that's as a physician seeing this patient back maybe in three weeks or two, you know, I didn't have the day-to-day -day contact with them. And so that was really challenging. So when you talk about Charlie, yes, a lot of things can fall through the holes because you don't have the support structure with our youth athletes. Right. And I would say that that is so key. I was providing the mental health piece of it too. Mm -hmm. And I realized that yes, we don't have the resources at the youth sports level that we have at the college level at times, sure. right? Depending sure. on the level of college competition. But what can we do? What are things we can do? And there are things that we can do to ensure that we build that structure around that youth athlete so that all these issues are addressed with them. And I will say that the parent is growing as well in their role. By the time you have an athlete that's at that college level, the parent has matured into their role as a parent and supporter, and their kid is now off at school, right? They're gone. They're in the college level. They realize that they, they've done that. 
at the youth level, parents are still trying to navigate what their role is. How do they advocate for their kid in terms of increased playing time, right? Should they? Yeah. How do they how do they advocate for their child if they think that the coach or another parent is verbally abusive? I mean, these are hard things, really hard things, which is why it's not easy, but we have to do this because our kids are shaped by their experiences in athletics, positively and negatively. And if we can eliminate the negative factors, then that will only enhance their growth as a person, um, as a brother, sister, as a child, as an athlete, et cetera. And so all of these avenues that we can find, positive coaching, you know, positive coaching alliance, for example, having all of our parents register and take the safe sports um, module, which is free for parents of youth, youth athletes, which is recognizing, you know, kind of predatory behavior that can happen at all levels. Um, parents, other parents, coaches, medical staff, we all have examples of that, right? Making sure that our coaches at the youth level have the requisite um, medical uh, training to recognize a concussion, you know, to recognize when there's a heat illness situation happening. Um, and, and certainly at the highest level really is trying to get more athletic trainers involved even at the youth club level. If you had an athletic trainer at the youth club level on your board of directors or hired to oversee uh, the medical care and training, um, the training of the coaches and the education of the coaches, and making sure best practices were there at every soccer event that would go a long way in terms of protecting the health and safety of our youth athletes. Sports medicine advisory committees are something we see at the high school level and uh, at CIF here in California, the National Federation of High Schools. At the national level, they, you've, you sit on those boards, you've seen those levels, you're, you're actively involved. I don't know if I've ever seen a sports medicine advisory committee for a youth club or youth sport type of organization. And you wonder why that practice hasn't been transferred because to your point, such an impactful opportunity to work with athletes. I mean, we, you've heard how you, you shared how sports shaped who you are and your decisions and where you are now with your life. And I think most of us that play sports feel that way strongly about them. And it's such an opportunity to create that impact. Why aren't we doing more at the medical level where Quite frankly, we've got about 37 million kids every year playing youth sports, not in high school. Why don't we yeah, just spend more yes. time in care there, right? I agree. I agree. What, what, what clubs try to do is they try to get a physician, any physician who's a parent on their board. And then That's all, all the pressure, all the responsibilities go right. to that person. And uh, I can't even tell you how many neighboring clubs have said, will you join our board? Right. <laughs> and it's, you know, again, balance, right? Balance of, of what, what you can achieve. What I would recommend is that every club look at its budget and how they get money into their program. And they devise a, a plan of how, I mean, everyone's got some financial wizard on their board as well, right? Someone who's an accountant or someone who's, who's in finance who can look at it and go, okay, if we ask every team to pay an additional X amount, will we be able to support hiring an, a, 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 an athletic trainer to be part of our club who can help us with implementation of best practices? That'll be, you know, or, that'll be an amazing day. For, it would be, or apply right. for grants, yeah. right? Because right now we ask our parents to pay so much money for cleats, so much money for uniforms, so much money for this, you tag on an additional fee for an athletic trainer to be hired by the club. And, and I will say like my kids have been part of clubs where there definitely are players who, um, you know, there's a sliding scale in terms of their ability to pay to join this club. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's sure, some yeah. people that don't pay anything. And then the people who can pay more, they can, they compensate and they pay more. Um, and essentially I do think that every parent who has the ability to do so if given the opportunity, would pay extra money, knowing that this is going towards protecting the health and safety 
of their kids, knowing that this money is going towards making sure there's an AED at every field, an automated external defibrillator. If you write out what this money is going towards, yes, I do feel like parents would pony up and guardians would pony up this to if they know exactly what the job description is for this for this uh, athletic trainer for this league or club, and and what they can provide. It's all about their, education, right? Kids. Yep. Education, education, education. Yeah, yeah. Hi, my name is Charlie Wund, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Agency for Student Health Research. When I started the company over a decade ago, I aimed to help reduce injuries within youth sports. Since then. InjureFree was created as a risk management software platform and has grown to become one of the leading injury reporting platforms used by thousands of athletic organizations and schools nationwide. Our expansive education library and reporting technology provides the tools administrators need to take the pain out of risk management. As a former high school athletic director and youth sports organizer, I understand the regulatory compliance requirements and need for individual accountability. Our goal is to provide a service that does better than checking the box. For more information or to schedule a demo, please visit www.injurefree.com. That's www.injurefree.com. Well, we appreciate it, Cindy. I mean, I think we've touched on a lot of pieces and it's certainly uh, obvious and we sit here and we listen and we talk about all of these issues. Your passion for what you do is uh, hard to miss. And uh, I think, you know, any any parent listening at this point hopefully understands the importance of the medical community and the care that's being provided for athletes and their athlete. But certainly as a parent would love to have you be on our soccer board and make sure that my kids had that proper uh, uh, oversight. We like to wrap up our uh, our podcast with questions for our guests that are you know big big forward thinking type uh, topics. But if you could change one thing about youth sports safety, if you could just snap your fingers and tomorrow it would be done. You know, I think we've touched on AEDs everywhere. We've touched on athletic trainers everywhere. Um, you know, there's uh, licensure being in California specifically being that that one piece here that we're trying to trying to finish up. Um, but what is one thing that that really stands out for you, and uh, in in all of your vast experiences and knowledge, that you feel as if this one thing could happen, and then you'd you'd be happy, and you'd be a happy woman, you'd be uh, you'd be good to go to leave the world and know that it's in a better place. What's that one thing that really just needs to be fixed and you wish you could do it immediately. This is so different than everything we've talked about. So be ready for this. All right. I wish every parent would let their kid play their sport joyfully without any external pressures and that every parent understands that their kid may not be getting a college scholarship and going on to play professionally because those false expectations have such a negative effect on children. And I have seen that as a healthcare provider. I've seen it as a team physician. Have the realization that why is your child playing that sport? What is the purpose of athletic activity? It's for health and wellness and developing team and a sense of self. And um, if that end goal ends up being where they want to pursue it in college and beyond, let that be their goal um, and support it. But uh, you're there, your goal there is to support them um, and to help them reach their decision. And uh, that's what I would say. Let them play a lot of sports too. I would just say, Data has showed that um, diversification of sports when they're younger creates a better athlete rather than singular focus. It also decreases the risk of severe injuries and, uh, and injuries that take a longer time to recover if they don't specialize in just one sport and create more free play, not just organized play. Holistic. Again, oh my I'll God! I just went on about that. That's good. I just went on. 
Sorry about that all. No, it's terrific. Again, it brings it back. It's the it's the holistic, it's the whole athlete, it's the multidimensional approach. Um, and you know, always thinking broadly, always expanding our our thoughts about, you know, we're not just talking about one myopic thing. It's part of a bigger picture and it's all interconnected. Can't appreciate that perspective uh, any more than we do. It's it's amazing that what you've done with your career. And uh, we appreciate it. We appreciate the impact you make in the communities. We appreciate the impact you make in our lives as individuals. Um, your legacy continues on and we're excited to uh, watch opening day for the NWSL. San Diego's yeah. going to make another run this year. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. It's been great. And, and again, thank you for making it seem like, well, this has been so comfortable talking to both of you and uh, I can't wait to hear the podcast. <laughs> we would like to thank you all for listening to today's episode of the Safety Goals Podcast presented by Injury I'm your host, Justin Torres, and a big thanks to our special guest. And also, thanks to my co-host, Charlie One. To listen to other episodes of the Safety Goals Podcast, check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.